I want to start by asking a very important question. All right, I really need you to focus, to think, and to ponder a very important thing. What does it mean to be Australian? Yes, I'm the best. Congratulations, Gerald. But unfortunately, boasting is un-Australian. <coughs> Dorothy. He stole my recipe. Dobbing is also very un-Australian. Hey, lady, you're un-Australian. <laughs> Cheat stick, un-Australian. What's the deal with people in Australia? Did they just... There's a word. Is that kombucha? Un-Australian. The worst thing you can ever call an Australian. Where do they go? Oh, just an infinite cultural exile from which they can never return. Okay, yeah. It's getting a little out of hand. Probably no one left soon. Ruby, can you turn that up? Subtitles? Un-Australian. <gasps> Great, now I can't get a drink. So bloody pub is un-Australian. Oh, fuck! For. Tried to eat a meat pie with these. Don't know the words to K-San. Charged him a dollar for tomato sauce. <coughs> what is this? Where am I? <coughs> Man, how's that unastrap? All I said was bon appetit. Beautiful day, lamb, doesn't get any better than this. Well, that was an unexpected escalation. <laughs> it's zero alcohol. Still free beer, though. Bludging is un-Australian. It's lazy, not un-Australian. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Where did you get that? The Exile barbecue. Everyone's there, mate. There's a lamb barbecue happening in Exile? Uh -huh. Un-Australian? <laughs> Looks like we're all a bit un-Australian. Guess that's what makes us Australian. How do we get back? Why would you want to? So what does it mean to be Australian? How many great Australianisms are in that ad, right? And I don't know if you saw it, um, Australia Day was just a little while ago, and my apologies to all the vegetarians in the house today, in the church today. But um, what does it mean to be Australian? And there are so many different uh, cultural things that makes Australian. If you have a look online, there are some key words that just continue to come up when you look, you know, what, is it, what makes an Australian? Words like irreverence. Apparently, we're an irreverent bunch. Words like friendly, slang, and the fact that we shorten all of our words, our sense of humour. 
Um, the, the whole concept of giving someone a fair go is so Australian, isn't it? Our beaches being tough, our diversity, barbecues, eating our national symbol on barbecues, our tolerance, Vegemite, and a whole bunch of animals that will kill you dead. When you look online, they're the sorts of things that come up when you ask the question, what does it mean to be Australian? As Australians, we have a, we've got a particular culture. We've got particular values. We've got particular perspectives and ways of looking to anywhere else in the world. Okay. So Paul is speaking to the Christians and the believers in the church at Philippi. And he says something that um, might be a little bit unusual. Philippi, in, in case you're wondering, is um, in modern-day Greece, in that northern part that's, uh, you know, Macedonia, Greece, that sort of area there. And the, the old city of Philippi was a, a relatively medium-sized, I guess, Roman outpost. So it's in Greece, it's right on the border of what was then called Asia Minor, and it was a real melting pot of Romans and, and Greeks and Asians and, and people from all around the different area. But it was a, a lovely little city um, that sat beside a, a meandering river with, uh, with lots of open space around it and nature around it and everything else. And you can even go today and you can have a look at the ruins and you can see where the houses were and, and you can see where the civic buildings were and where the prison was and where the amphitheater was. You can walk through it and have a look around. It was a beautiful little city. And Paul has been there some time before, and now he's somewhere else, and he's writing a letter to the believers in this town at Philippi, the Philippians. And he says this. He says, whatever happens, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting, ooh, hello, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it's really easy to skip over those first two words, whatever happens. But they're actually quite significant. It gave us a little bit of the background about what had been happening in Philippi. I don't know if you remember or you may not have been here. I'm just quickly going to go over that again. So Paul and Silas arrived at Philippi late in the week, and it, uh, it, it came to a Sabbath. And they went out just outside of the town. You saw where that river was beside the main gate there into the town. They went out there, and there were all these... Women and kids and families having picnics and just enjoying the outdoors. And so Paul and Silas started talking to these people. And they met Lydia, who's then mentioned through Acts as one of the leaders of the church in Philippi. And they met these other people. And all these people started hearing about the good news of Jesus Christ. And they started um, believing. And they were converted. And, and this little church started in Philippi. And so Paul and Silas, for the next few days, weeks, they're walking around Philippi. And they're talking to people and engaging and asking questions and starting to talk about Jesus. And there's this girl who's possessed by a demon. And she's following them around with the intent of just being disruptive. She's just doing this demon, not the girl, the demon in this girl is just doing everything it can to try to stop what Paul and Silas are doing. And it gets to the point where Paul just gets sick of it. And so he casts this demon out. And it leaves her. And the problem is that this girl was a slave owned by some very wealthy business people. 
And they were using this girl to earn income because the demon inside her could predict the future. And so they were selling her services as a fortune teller. And now that the demon had been cast out, they had lost their income. Their investment was worth nothing. And so we don't know exactly whether they were friends with the city rulers or whether they bribed and Silas to have them publicly whipped, beaten, and then thrown into prison. And you can read the story in Acts 16. It's an amazing story. Paul and Silas are in prison, and the, the prison warden, the man in charge of the prison, comes to them and says, I've heard about what you've been saying and doing. What must I do to be saved? And so what happens that night is he smuggles them out of the prison to his home. He invites all the other workers in the prison and his family and friends, and they all come in. And his wife dresses Paul and Silas's wounds and, and fixes them up and feeds them. And then Paul preaches to them all night, and they're all converted. And so the warden has to smuggle them back into prison um, the next day, and there they sit. Now, I can't imagine that prison would have been a very nice place. But there they sit. Until the rulers of the city, their lesson by now. We've beaten them up, they're bloody, they're injured, they're sitting in this awful prison. And so the word comes back to the warden, you can let them out. And Paul does something really strange. He says, no, I'm not going to go. You have arrested and beaten two Roman citizens without a trial... So either I'm going to elevate this to the Roman governor and he can deal with you or you can come down to this prison, walk us out yourself to the town square and make a public apology for what you have done to us and ask for our forgiveness. They're your options, Mr. Ruler. And they were petrified because... The whole known world had been conquered by the Roman Empire. And when you were a Roman citizen, you had rights. You had privileges. Rome was not known for taking lightly to people beating up their own. And so the rulers of the city came down to the prison, walked Paul and Silas out, and made a public apology. So this was the context this was the history of what had happened. And when Paul's writing to the Philippians years later, he, he's reminding them, but he also knows because he's heard that that conflict that started right with him, um, that there were still factions within the city that hated the believers, that were doing everything they could to arrest them, to beat them, to do whatever they could to oppose them. And so Paul writes this to them, and he says, whatever happens... Even though you may be attacked, even though you may be imprisoned, even though stuff may be happening that's not right, it's not fair, I want you to act as citizens of heaven and in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because you see, some church folk there, some believers, were Roman citizens and they experienced the same rights that Paul had experienced, the same privileges. But a lot of them weren't. They were Greeks, they were Jews, they were from all over the place. And so Paul's saying to them, you know what? You need to band together. You need to stand together. You who are as one people, citizens of heaven. And your citizenship, our citizenship, will always come with perks, 
or problems, depending on where we're from. And it's interesting that for us, we are so blessed to live in Australia. We live in one of the best countries to live in in the world. In fact, um, a, an index was put out just not long ago, earlier this year, about the best countries to live in in the world. And we're right up there. We're equal position number eight. So we're not doing too badly, all right? But also, we're only a few points off the top three. There's nothing in those top eight. You are blessed to live in one of the best countries in the world. Why? We have freedom. We have a great quality of life. We've got good wages. We've got relatively low pollution. We've got um, you know, natural resources and stability and security. And we've got um, a, a decent education system. Yeah? No? No comment from the crowd? We've got a great education system. We've got a great healthcare system. We live in one of the best countries in the world. No wonder we're called the lucky country, yeah? And you see this even more clearly when you travel overseas. Another index was released just recently that uh, looked at the power of passports. And the Australian passport is actually one of the most powerful passports in the world. It's accepted by most countries. It comes with the most rights and reciprocal agreements. And when you travel overseas, no matter where you go, an Australian passport brings benefits. It brings privileges. It stands for something positive. And it is backed by a government and by a nation and by a people who look out for their own. And in the same way, as citizens of heaven, we are backed powerfully as well. And when, uh, when Mel and I were doing a fair bit of backpacking in our, uh, in our early years around the world, you know, there were plenty of situations where we found that as soon as people knew that we were Australians, we were treated well. Every nationality, every nation was known for different things. You know, the Americans were known for this, and the Italians were known for being loud, and the Israelis were known for that. Like, every nation was known for something. But when people found out that we were Australian, we were generally treated well, which came in really handy on a number of occasions. Like, for example, and got pulled up by a military checkpoint near the Iranian-Armenian border. When they found out we were Australians, the machine guns dropped. It was handy. So Paul is writing to the Philippians and he's encouraging them. He's saying, live as citizens of heaven and live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he goes on. And he says, then, if you, if you do this, if you live in this way, then you will stand shoulder to shoulder in one spirit and one purpose fighting together for the faith of the gospel without being intimidated or frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And now that we know the context of who he's writing to and what they were going through, that makes sense. Um, but we actually lose something in translation here in the English. It's actually better translated, instead of for, the word with. It's just a small change. But it actually makes a significant difference. 
Because it is the faith, it is the gospel that is the weapon that we fight with. It's the power that backs us. It's the authority of the citizenship of heaven that we have every time we go out into the world. And when Paul writes this, he actually does something really interesting. He uses specific language, specific words, because he's actually trying to get the reader to create specific imagery in, in their mind. He's, he's using language that in the day would be used to describe sports. You read it again. Stand shoulder to shoulder in one spirit with one purpose, fighting towards a common goal and not intimidated by the team that's against you. When I think of that, when I read that, I think of this. Rugby. Don't, don't you? Shoulder to shoulder, in the scrum, in the ruck. And I think of this. Is the study wall of my father-in-law, Melissa's dad, in Melbourne. And on his wall, you may have seen this in Pride of Place. It's just a frame, unassuming. But when I was working on Wheatbix back in 2002... We were shooting a TV commercial. Um, I was living in Sydney at the time, but we flew up to, um, to, to Brisbane, and we actually shot the, co the commercial down at South Bank here. And we had James Hurd, and we had George Gregan and Brett Lee, and we were doing the whole Aussie kids thing and a whole crew of other people there. And we were shooting this great TV anthem ad. And in the lunch break, I went out, and I found a news agency, and I bought a card. Because just a few days before we were shooting this ad, had been the final game played in Australia of the Bledisloe series for that, that year. And Australia had won. And Melissa and I were at that game, and it was a cracker of a game. I don't remember the details of what happened, but what I do remember is that we were there. We were cheering. We were standing. It was close. I, I believe from memory it went into overtime. It was an awesome battle. And Australia came out triumphant, and it was glorious. And made even more glorious by the fact that Melissa's family support New Zealand. Now, I'd only been married for a few months at this stage. It was all still pretty fresh. So I thought, what better way to impress my new father-in-law just after this Bledisloe game than to go down to a store and buy a sympathy card. I'm so sorry for your loss. And bring it back, and, um, and George Gregan was having, having lunch with everybody else. George Gregan, if you don't know him, George Gregan at that stage in 2002 was the Australian Wallabies captain, the Australian captain. He's the one that led us to victory in that Bledisloe. In fact, old Georgie Gregan here is actually, a, to this day, Australia's most capped international player. And an awesome guy. And I gave him this sympathy card. I don't know if you can read it there. Don't bottle up your feelings. Grief is difficult to hide, and everybody understands just what you feel inside. And on it goes. To Graham, there's always next year, George Gregan. <laughs> and I sent this to Dad. Now, Dad took it pretty well. <laughs> he saw the humour in it. But Lyndon, Melissa's oldest brother, wasn't so impressed. 
So he took it upon himself to write a letter to the All Blacks, which basically says, my little sister just married a git. (laughs) What are we going to do about it? He heard nothing for several weeks. And then suddenly um, my my father-in-law found a card signed by the whole All Blacks team. And so, on the wall, in Pride of Place, (laughs) framed, is a letter and two cards. Because they are proudly nationalistic. You know, even though they've been living in a different country, even though they've been living in a different country for years, for decades, even though her two brothers weren't even born in New Zealand, they were born in the islands as missionaries, they're still so patriotic to New Zealand. (laughs) And we might even have a few of them in the audience today, in the congregation. And so Paul writes to these people and he says, you need to have that kind of feeling, that kind of passion about being citizens of heaven. Then you will stand shoulder to shoulder. Whatever happens, and no matter who opposes you, use your citizenship, your citizenship of heaven, and all the authority and the power and, and the privilege and the backing that come with, comes with that to impact the world around you, to fight for what's right, to share God's joy and his love and all the values and the characteristics of your homeland, to share that with the world around you. And he goes on. And he says, you know what we need to do? We need to act like Jesus did. If any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Be in agreement. Love one another. And working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish or try to impress others. Be humble. Think of others before yourself. Don't just look out for your own interests, but the interests of others too. What he's saying is we need to transfer the values and the perspectives and the way of life that is associated with our heavenly kingdom, with our heavenly citizenship, And we need to take that and we need to share that with the world around us. We we need to use that to encourage people. We need to use that to to drive friendship and companionship for the lonely, to help those in need, to, to just make a positive change in the world around us. To take who God is, his goodness, his love, his joy, and to stand up for that. To stand up for that with the same fervor and passion and loyalty that Melissa and I stood for the Wallabies in that Bledisloe Cup, to stand up with the same passion that that you would stand up for the Queensland Maroons. That's the language Paul's using. And as a blue supporter living in Queensland, I know exactly what he's talking about when he talks about the opposition that you might face. It's even in my family. My kids were born and raised in Queensland. My wife's from Melbourne, so they support anyone except for New South Wales. So it's just me for years with a losing streak that no one's even going to talk about today. 
And I thought about switching sides. <laughs> Not because of the losing streak, but when we decided to move to Queensland, when I knew that our kids were going to grow up Queenslanders, I thought about switching sides so that our family could be united when we watch games. But it is so hard. I can't do it. I just can't do it. I've tried, but I can't. Because the loyalty that you feel is just so deeply ingrained. The passion is so hot. You just can't switch. And when I find myself in a world of lost Maroon supporters, it is my duty to stand up for the Blues and all that they stand for. And likewise, when we stand in a world that is lost and going mad, it is our duty, it is our calling to stand up with that same passion for the values and for the love and for everything that our heavenly kingdom stands for. And we do that so that God's goodness and his love and his joy can, and his holiness can actually flow out of us like light in darkness or like a river of life into the world around us. Now, I don't know who here is familiar with the Bible Project. I know that the school uses it as a learning tool, so some of the students may have seen some of, the, uh, some of the resources there. But let me just encourage you, look it up, the Bible Project. It is great. The videos are good, but the real values in the podcasts, listen to those. They go into a lot of depth. They're, they're really interesting. Let me just play you a quick little video clip. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place. It's the hot spot of God's presence. 
And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be... Crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge, but there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. Did you find that interesting? 
It's great, isn't it? If you did, maybe you should have a look at some of the other um, resources in the, in the Bible Project. There's some really good stuff there. And I love the way that it, it illustrates and it demonstrates that, that goodness and that glory and that joy and that holiness that comes out of, out of God through his people at the end in that river of life, don't you? And that's exactly what Paul's talking about when he's writing to the, um, to the Philippians. And he goes on and he says, well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to have that impact? And he says, well, we need to have the same attitude as Jesus. Who, being God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing by taking the humble position of a slave and being born as a, as a human being and appearing in human form, he even humbled himself to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Paul's saying, we need to take this kind of attitude into the world around us. This is how we need to live. This is how we actually show our citizenship and make an impact in the world around. And he goes on, he says, therefore, because of the attitude that Jesus had, because of what he did, God elevated Jesus to a place of highest honour. And gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And he goes on and he writes even more and he says, You know what? If you want to have that same impact, if you want to make your Heavenly Father that proud as well, then this is what we need to do. We need to work hard to show the results of our salvation. Obey God with deep reverence and fear. God is working in you, giving you the desire, the desire, the motivation, as well as the power to do what pleases him. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright stars in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the gospel of Christ. Then on the day of Christ's return, I'll be proud that I did not run the race in vain, that my work with you was not useless, and I want all of you to share in that joy. So how do we share in that joy? Will you use your heavenly citizenship to stand up and make a difference in this world that is deteriorating day by day? Will you stand up with the same sort of passion and loyalty that you might stand up for the Maroons or the Blues or the whoever it might be? Will you take that same spirit and use it to make a difference in the world around you? That's Paul's challenge to the Philippians, and it's the same this morning. Will you stand up? And will you stand out? And will you be a world changer Will you be a citizen of heaven? Or are you satisfied to just float through life without reaching your heavenly potential, without making the impact that God is calling you to make? A little while ago, there was a Christian pastor in Zimbabwe who stood up for his Christian citizenship. He stood up for his God, and as a result, he was martyred. He was killed by a crowd. And after his death, some people went back to the little room where he lived, 
And in his desk, they found a piece of paper. And I want to read you what was on that piece of paper in closing. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've crossed the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus and I won't look back, let up, slow down or back away or be still. My past is redeemed, my presence makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and down with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colourless dreams, tame vision, worldly speaking, cheap living, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I, am no, I no longer need preeminence, position, promotion, platitudes, or popularity. I don't have to be first, tops, right, recognised, regarded or awarded. I now live by faith. I lean on his presence. I walk by patience. I'm uplifted by... My face is set. My gait is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. But my God is reliable. And my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will not give up, let up, shut up until I've stayed up, stored up, paid up, prayed up and preached up the cause of Christ. And as a disciple of his, I must go till he comes. Give till I drop, preach till all know, and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me because my colors will be clear. That's the heart. That's the spirit. And that's the attitude of a citizen of heaven. So I invite you to stand up right now as we sing our last praises to God for this morning's program. And I want you to ponder and think about your colors.
merciful God, I pray that you will empower us to live as citizens of your kingdom, that we will live in a way, in a manner that brings glory to you and that is worthy of the gospel of Christ and everything that Jesus has done for us, everything that you have done for us. 
And I pray that you will empower us, that you will teach us, that you will lead us, that you will comfort us, that you will guide us, so that we can be those rivers of life that flow out from you to the world around us. And we look forward to that day when you come again and make everything new. In Jesus' name, amen.